And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. Bruce Anderson is with me. And, uh, you know, I hate to start this way, but I pretty well, I've got to start with an admission. An admission that, once again, I was wrong and Bruce was right. Now, we're not going to dwell on this because there's no reason to dwell on it. But Boris Johnson is not going to be the Prime Minister again in the UK unless something remarkable happens again in the next few weeks. But well, I Peter, doubt- you should predict it again. Uh, <laughs> I think that your tendency to predict his success has been a real feature for me of this podcast. So go for it one more time. What's he going to do next? I don't, you know, I think he's going to disappear now. He's okay. going to disappear for a while and, and leave center stage to uh, Rishi Sunak, who is he's a, he's a pretty good story. I mean, th- this is a very wealthy guy. He's a billionaire. Him and his wife are, are billionaires. Uh, but he had like uh, a start as basically just an ordinary guy, an ordinary kid. His uh, family grew up in southern England, I think uh, Southampton or Portsmouth, somewhere down there. And he, um, his dad was a doctor, a GP. His, his, his mom was a pharmacist. Uh, young Rishi worked as a kind of delivery boy, riding a bicycle, taking you know medicine around to uh, uh, different people in, the, in that community. And then he worked his way up. He went to, you know, he, he did great at school. He went to college. He went to university. He was in the States. He was a hedge fund manager. Um, he made a lot of money on the markets. Uh, his wife came from a very wealthy family. Uh, he was a, an early advocate of Brexit, um, first elected 2015. I mean, when you look at him on paper, it's pretty impressive. And he looked pretty impressive on, on, on day one as, as PM. But, man, talk about a mountain of problems. It ain't going to be easy for the new prime minister of the U.K., no, I agree, Peter. I think that, you know, I've been consuming a lot of news and stories about uh, Rishi Sunak. And uh, one of the most interesting voices that I've listened to is Rory Stewart, who was a conservative minister, uh, cabinet minister for a period of time uh, in the UK and who served alongside Rishi Sunak and got to know him quite well. Um, and uh, Rory is part of a two person a podcast that I recommend to listeners if they haven't been aware of it or listened to it called The Rest is Politics. I believe it's a BBC podcast. It's a really interesting one on on UK politics. And Stuart was talking about Sunak and his experience and his knowledge of him over the years and how bright um, he was and how they became uh, friends. Um, and then that they had a falling out over, not a falling out in the sense of uh, real deep personal tension, I don't think, but more that uh, Rory Stewart couldn't understand uh, the positions that Sunak was taking on Brexit, for example. Uh, so that's an interesting, I, I find him quite an interesting character. I think the most important thing about his assuming this role now is that the pressure he's under is to stabilize uh, the UK economy to stabilize the pound to reassure people that politics isn't just going to be a series of gyrations uh, of politicians kind of going through 
uh, almost histrionic position taking to kind of rally support or raise money or do whatever else it is that's their narrow political agenda, but rather to take the role of being government seriously and to uh, to kind of take the drama down. Uh, I, well, it remains to be seen what he's uh, how he's going to do with that, but that seems to be his intention uh, for the for the time being, and I think it's welcome, um, not just for people in the UK, but for people in other parts of the world who have had enough of kind of populist gyrations. You know, when you make it sound so simple. Um, I know that's not <laughs> your belief. It's not simple. Not it's, simple. Uh, it is a tough position to be in, and meanwhile. They're down, whatever it was, 30 points to labor. That may change as a result of the next uh, couple of days and the last, and the last couple of days. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it, it's going to be a tough slog for uh, Prime Minister Sunak. We'll have to get used to that, too, the name changes um, in, in Britain. Um, the one thing that doesn't change is the, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Jeremy Hunt stays in that position. Um, he's only been in it for a couple of weeks. Uh, but Sunak decided it was right and proper to keep him in that position as he was just just starting to unveil a new plan, which I think becomes more clear either uh, today or tomorrow. There's also a pretty active conversation in the UK about how Britons will react to having a prime minister who is a person of colour. And I think it's a really interesting uh, development. Um, Obviously, I'm just personally kind of hopeful that it isn't a, a source of of tension in politics in the UK, that people sort of uh, look look at him without thinking about his color. But I think it's fair to say that um, because he wasn't elected in a popular election and because he's the first person of color to hold that position in the UK, there's there are people who say, this won't help the Conservative Party's re-election chances because there will be people who won't vote Conservative because it's led by a person of color. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how how much that might be uh, able to affect some voters, but it'll be a thing to watch for sure. First person of color, uh, youngest person to hold the job in like 200, 200 years. 200 years, something. something like that. And... Um, and a guy who's like very small in stature, you, I never realized it till I saw him standing beside somebody else the other day. He's a very, um, you know, not not that short is a fault, it isn't, uh, but he's short and he's very slight. You know, he, he can't weigh more than like 140, 150 pounds, um, but he's a powerhouse. I mean, he, he exercises like crazy. Um, you know, he runs, he bikes, he does all those things. Uh, and he's taking a different attitude towards where to live. He's not necessarily going to live at 10 Downing Street. Um, he may a couple of days a week, but the family had just bought a home after he left Johnson's cabinet, um, uh, you know, a few months ago. And uh, they quite like that home and the kids go to school nearby and all that. So, I mean, he's <laughs> there's some interesting dynamics around the new prime minister is going to be very interesting to watch how that plays out over the next little while. Okay, let's bring it home uh, because there's some interesting stuff going on uh, in our country, and not the least of which is the Emergencies Act Commission, which is looking at 
what actually happened during the convoy occupation of uh, Ottawa. I'm still, you know, I still have this thing about calling it, which everybody does, calls it the Freedom Convoy. I like, I, that just like totally buys into whatever the PR is on one side of this issue. It was a convoy. It occupied downtown Ottawa. That's the story. And trying to understand why the government chose to use special powers uh, to break it up and move them out. That's what this commission is all about. So, one of the headlines this week, and there were a number of them out of uh, the uh, hearings, was that Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario, uh, was asked to come to testify at the uh, at the commission. He's not going to do that. He wants to exercise his uh, privilege as a uh, politician and as a premier, uh, which he has a right to do. But the optics of this look really peculiar. Like, why wouldn't he go? Why wouldn't he testify? Most of this happened in his province, not just Ottawa, but the whole Windsor Bridge uh, stuff and smaller uh, protests in different parts of the country. He clamped down in Toronto when it looked like they were trying to move in around Queen's Park, the provincial legislature, and closed off the roads before the trucks could get there. So he took some actions, at least in his, you know, right in Toronto. But he's not willing to sit and testify about what happened in Ottawa. And I don't quite get that. Maybe you can explain it to me as to why why he's doing that. I mean, the headlines, of course, are what's he got to hide? Well, is that the only explanation, that there's something to hide here? <laughs> Oh, well, I think it's interesting, uh, Peter. I'm glad we're having a chance to talk about it. I do think that it's quite um, surprising in a way that the Premier of Ontario would be watching this thing transpire in Ottawa that includes testimony from the Ontario Provincial Police Force, which reports up through him. Um, there have been hundreds of pages of testimony delivered uh, by the OPP. And obviously, the role of the province through the policing was part of what, um, in the end, the the federal government used to decide that it did need the Emergency Powers Act. And there's another story today that that suggests that OPP itself had uh, intelligence that suggested that there were foreign forces that were involved in fomenting uh, some of the uh, some of what went on with this convoy with the occupation. We should point out but, that they that they they do claim to have had that intelligence in the papers and documents that were submitted, but there's no evidence of what that was, where it came from and how reliable right. it was. Right. So I think if you're, you know, if you're looking at that part of the story and you're the federal government, you're again kind of saying, well, look, there, there are various pieces of testimony that are coming forward. They're saying that there was a bit uncertain information uh, there was a bit of chaos. There was not as much coordination among the police services um, that could have been involved in stopping the convoy before it became a a more serious occupation. The OPP and the Ottawa Police Force in particular thought that um, the occupiers would be there for a weekend and then they would leave. And obviously, we know that that isn't what happened. Uh, but back to your question, Peter, of why Ford wouldn't um, participate. Um First thing that occurs to me is that he has said publicly that he fully supported 
Prime Minister Trudeau's decision to use the Emergencies Act. He didn't provide a lot of substantiation for why he felt that way. And people are entitled, I think, to be curious about that. And one way for him to satisfy that curiosity would be for him to participate as a witness in the hearing. But uh, for him to take that position and to go to a hearing in Ottawa and to explain that position would obviously put him somewhat at odds with Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader, and with um, other conservatives in other parts of the country like Danielle Smith and probably Scott Moe. And it, and it would um, have some conservatives look at Doug Ford and say, why are you aligning yourself with Justin Trudeau and the Liberals? Uh, because as we know, that became quite a tendentious issue. Um, the, the, the way in which the federal government dealt with the, the occupation for some people was an act of tyranny, was part of what they hate about Justin Trudeau and his government. Um, whereas for the majority of people, it was more a question of this situation got out of control in terms of what the police were able to do and government needed to do something, uh, to break the, uh, uh the situation and to, uh, put uh, law and order back on a path. I don't, uh, last thing I'll say, Peter, I don't know what you think, but I, I feel like the media need to continue to do what they're doing to press on this issue. I don't think it's right for the premier to be able to hide be behind um, statements uh, like Paul Calandra, re remember him famous from his days in Ottawa as parliamentary secretary, stood up and said some of the most outrageous and obfuscating things in parliament. Him saying, you know, the premier's too busy to go to question period. And, and also the province considers the commission to be a commission about policing, not politics. That is ludicrous in my view. It is a, you know, policing is a question within the commission conversation but the commission conversation is about the politics that went into the choice that public policy choice made by politicians so i don't i don't think that ford should be able to get away with not showing up and i think it's going to be to some degree on the media to keep the pressure up on that point okay two two points there one is the media issue and you know we discussed this what just a couple of weeks ago on that that issue of the uh, hidden um, labeling of uh, Pierre Polyev's uh, YouTube channel and whether or not the media or the politicians were going to pursue that enough to find out who was actually responsible for that and why did it happen in the first place, um, that seems to have been dropped. Like just, yep. oof, it's gone. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't media organizations still working and trying to get to the bottom of that. I don't know. But it has been a couple of weeks, and for the most part, I haven't heard anything more about it. There have been a couple of dribs and drabs here and there, but nothing of any serious nature. This is kind of the same thing. There will be a responsibility on the part of the media. And, I, you know, I, I watched that for all the knocks they take, that Queen's Park um, press gallery, uh, at least some of them, are pretty aggressive in trying to go after Ford, but he is... It's like trying to nail, what's that expression, you know, whatever against a Nail jello to a wall. Nail jello to a wall. It, it's awfully hard. Uh, half the time he's not around, like it, they don't see him. And when they, when they do see him, he's kind of protected a distance from the media. But when they get at him, they challenge him and they question him. And he, Ford, in his own 
special way. He's pretty good at it after years of dealing in city council and uh, and other things. Um, he he ducks it and moves on, or he gives some kind of folksy answer and and out he goes. But they got to keep trying. They got to keep trying. They got to turn out. They got to. It's it's not so much a question of turning up the heat on them, but really shining a light on what happens when certain norms in our public life are broken and are broken because it's politically convenient for the breaker and where the public may not be paying enough attention to really see the fact that something got broken, some notion of the the way in which we govern ourselves and approach our public discourse has changed. And the more, and this isn't uh, a question just about conservatives, uh, to be clear, um, people in government of any political stripe are capable of observing a situation like this. And if Ford gets away with saying, I'm not going to go and talk about this, um, it sets a precedent in my view that other politicians of any stripe might decide as a precedent that they can use, which is that they don't have to go and contribute to a question of accountability. And this isn't even Doug Ford's accountability for, he didn't make the decision um, to invoke the Emergencies Act. But we shouldn't let these precedents be set, in my opinion, as citizens, without recognizing that this could come back to haunt us. Uh, and it's better if we if we kind of hold uh, hold the line on some of these kinds of choices that politicians might make because it might feel convenient or politically expedient for them. Okay, I have one other question on this before we move on. First of all, I should mention that his lawyers, Doug Ford's lawyers, the province's lawyers, are saying that irreparable harm could be caused if um, if Ford is forced to testify. Now, they don't explain what that irreparable harm is, and you're left to try and guess what it could be. Um, I suppose it could be any number of things. It could be harm to the process. It could be harm to the findings. It could be harm to Ford. It could be harm to Trudeau. It could be it could be any number of things, right? Well, I, actually, I think that the, what they're saying, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the irreparable harm would be establishing a precedent where a commission could compel a parliamentarian to appear. Right. The this process. notion of parliamentary privilege as they interpret it or choosing to interpret it now means that you don't have to, um, if you're compelled to appear, you don't have to. Now, that felt to me like a lawyer's argument, which is not to say it's an inappropriate argument, but it's not a politically uh, salient argument in my view. The notion that some horrible precedent would be set by having the premier go and answer some questions about this doesn't doesn't wash i don't think for most people it shouldn't anyway sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no no no, no. i uh, i'm glad you did because it puts the the point on that it's just when you just see the headline irreparable harm you can think any number of things uh process is one of them yeah. um and uh you know anyway we'll see how the uh, decisions are made on that here's my question to you as somebody who's been in this position uh, before as uh, an advisor, what have you, to uh, various different politicians. In a situation like this, where you're basically trying to duck the process, 
and you're assuming that you're going to be challenged on this, but for how long? As an advisor, what do you say to the uh, to the person, in this case the premier, what do you say about your positioning on this where you know, we don't think you should do it and here's how the next days or weeks are going to unfold? You know, I think it really um, comes down to a question of how long will it take before the news cycle moves on to other things. And so you'll take the heat for a number of days, maybe even a number of weeks, but eventually um, people will move on to something else. Second part of that is um, public opinion. How much will public opinion be engaged on this when people are worried about, you know, COVID or inflation or, you know, a variety of other issues in their everyday lives? Will people dial in on this or will they say, well, this is just politics and um, we're not really that interested? We know that there are people who are following the commission hearings in, in Ottawa fairly closely, but it's not everybody. It's a minority of people who are doing that. And most of those people, their opinions and their political choices are already mostly settled. So that would be if you wanted to advise a politician to do the cynical thing, in my view, the cynical thing and not show up for that hearing. That's what you talk about. Uh, How much damage will you take um, because the media will pound you for a while and your political opponents will criticize you? Pardon me. But how much for how long um, will that go on? And, um, you know, and the prevailing evidence over the years has been that fewer people are paying much attention to politics and the news media do feel an obligation at some point to move on to other stories. And so uh, it's not the choice I would recommend, but that's probably the conversation that would happen. Well, speaking of moving on to other stories, we're going to do that now. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of things that um, Jagmeet Singh had to say in the last couple of days and the impact they have on the uh, landscape right now. So we'll be back right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Bridge, the Wednesday edition, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Bruce is here. I'm Peter Mansbridge. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. All right. Chuck Mead Singh, the leader of the uh, NDP, has said a couple of things this week that I think um, encourage us to take a little further discussion on both of them. First of all, as it relates to what we were just talking about in terms of the Emergencies Act, what Singh uh, said in an interview on CTV the other day was that if at the end of this commission process, the commission decides the government screwed up, Ottawa screwed up, the prime minister screwed up, uh, he should never have brought in the Emergencies Act. If that's the decision on the part of the commission, what would Singh do? Would he withdraw his support for the Liberal government? And Singh says, no, not necessarily. That's not the reason we entered this agreement. Um, If they made a mistake in the way they handled that story, that should be taken into account by the, uh, the people of Canada, but it's not a reason for us to withdraw our support. What'd you make of that? 
Uh, well, you know, I think that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP were aligned with the government on the decision about the Emergencies Act. Um, the And so, in a sense, um, I think he's basically saying we were part of that judgment. If the judgment in the minds of those running the commission was the wrong judgment, then um, for us to decide that we should break from the government over a decision that we supported at the time, um, that would seem hypocritical. So I think to some degree, I look at it and say, well, he's just basically saying we made the decision. We made the same conclude. We came to the same conclusion that the government came to at that time. And um, the commission may decide that that was wrong decision, but it wouldn't really necessarily make sense for us to say, well, what we felt then was wrong. Um, but we're going to pretend that we didn't feel it then, and we're just going to take it out somehow on the government. So I think that makes sense. I also think that it's a, you know, it's a reminder that for most people, the occupation and the conversation about the Emergencies Act is in the rearview mirror. They've got a lot of things that they're more worried about today than this. And so the notion that you would precipitate an election or allow one to happen because of the finding of the commission about the use of an act months ago that was for a short period of time in which most people supported uh, at the time and still, um, I think that would make, you know, kind of nonsensical politics for them. Um, you know, they're voters and the voters that they want to win from the liberals uh, in particular don't want an election about the use of the Emergencies Act last uh, last winter. They want if they want an election, they're going to want it to be about other things. And so it made sense for me that uh, Mr. Singh took that position. Well, that wasn't the only thing he talked about uh, in the last couple of days. He also talked about, and this shifts off now, the Emergency Act, uh, and it, it focuses on the Bank of Canada. Um, now, the Bank of Canada usually goes about its work. It's not much talk about it. it has, you know, for the last whatever number of years, it's been a, you know, an institution, a national institution that's done its thing. It monitors um, interest rates. It uh, impacts interest rates. It monitors inflation. It monitors the the economic uh, situation across the country on any number of uh, different uh, levels. However, when things get dicey, as they have in the last couple of years, focus starts to draw attention to the Bank of Canada and how fast or how slow it acts on uh, primarily moving their interest rate, the prime rate up and down, to react to economic conditions and specifically to inflation. Now, the Conservatives have been after, Pierre Polyev especially, has been after the Bank of Canada saying he'd fire the governor, he'd change this, he'd change that, and he would want them to follow the directions more specifically of the government. The Bank of Canada is supposed to act independently from the government. Um, now, Jagmeet Singh kind of jumped on the let's trash the Bank of Canada a little bit bandwagon in the last couple of days by saying he was not impressed with the way the bank has been handling uh, the situation as it relates to uh, interest rates, that it's more focused on inflation than it is on job creation, um, and that that is wrong. So, Talk to me about the tack that Singh is taking on the Bank of Canada. 
Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting intervention by the NDP leader. I thought it was probably um, a function of him looking for yet another way to kind of raise the issue of the impact that rising interest rates and inflation are having on on everyday Canadians and and the cost of living and particular probably the cost of food. But um, and I don't think that it's a choice that holds up all that well. And I think it's a choice that's a little bit dangerous in terms of the the kind of the broader way in which we do politics in the country. And it's not only happening here, but, you know, there are similar conversations in other countries about central bank and policies and that sort of thing. I think that um, the idea of an independent bank is a really important idea. It may not make uh, obvious sense to a lot of people to have um, a separate institution that's immune from political pressure uh, trying to deal with these issues. But over the long term, what we've seen is that if you if you destabilize those institutions, if they look as though they are creatures of politics or overly influenced by politics on a day in, day out basis, some bad things can happen to confidence in a country, in its currency, um, in its future trading relationships. And so that's why this notion of independence is important. Second thing is, of course, uh, Tiff Macklin, the governor, uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada, has said over and over and over again that the thing that he believes that he has to do to help Canadians the most that he can do is to fight inflation. And the tool that he has available to fight inflation is interest rates. And I think Mr. Singh also knows that inflation is uh, the thing that is causing the most hardship to people in Canada. And he also knows that hiking interest rates is literally the only significant thing that the Bank of Canada can do. So I found it a little bit uh, more like political posturing than problem solving uh, by the NDP leader. And I think it was a bit unfortunate that he decided to jump on the bandwagon of let's criticize the Bank of Canada and let's make it a kind of an object of contemporary politics because um, I actually thought that what uh, Minister Freeland, Christia Freeland said the other day was important. She was talking really about institutions around the world and what happens if we kind of undermine their independence and the confidence that people and and the rest of the world can have about them. Uh, I don't think it was meant to be a defense of the Bank of Canada. I think it was meant to be a defense of the you know parameters, basically, around how we do politics, uh, regardless of party. When you do your um, research data on what Canadians are thinking about various things, does does the Bank of Canada ever pop up in their answers? Um, how to answer that? I think the 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 issue that I see that causes me the most concern in our research is that people are less and less well informed uh, about um, how our institutions work and what public policy is or isn't in place to do. And there are also pockets of the population that are more and more misinformed or disinformed. And so it wouldn't surprise me if we were doing some polling on economic positions taken by politicians right now, if we were going to see the Bank of Canada pop up. Pierre Polyev in particular has been so critical of the Bank of Canada for a, a good number of months now that I would expect that it will pop up in the responses of of some conservative-oriented voters. I don't think we've measured that in the last little while. 
but I think the broader issue is this. A lot of people don't pay enough attention to the details of our politics and our public policy and our structures, so they don't really know what the role of the Bank of Canada could be or should be. And then there are other people who are subjected to misinformation or disinformation who end up with um, somewhat convoluted ideas about what these institutions are intended to do. Last uh, last topic for today. Um, we've discussed this at different times over the last couple of years, but it, it, the issue is engagement on by the public at an election time. Now, in many parts of the country, this has been municipal election time, and and, and voters across the country are, are have been heading to the polls. Ontario uh, was just earlier. Um, this week and you know i've always found that municipal having covered these stories at all levels from back in my churchill days covering you know kind of local politics municipal politics and then provincial politics when i was in winnipeg and in regina and then federal politics when i was was in ottawa i've always found that the issues that are most directly impacting the voter are the ones at the municipal level or at the local level, you know, whether it's about your, your roads, your sewer, your water, your schools, your what have you, that those things really impact people. And yet historically, when it gets around to voting, it's kind of the lowest turnout. And in Ontario this week, it was, I don't know whether they were record low turnouts, but they were pretty low. A lot of communities that, you know, 25%, 30%, you know, if you got over 40%, it looked like, wow, that's quite an accomplishment <laughs> given there were so many down in the 20s. What's the problem here? Uh, you know, because people do complain and whine about, uh, you know, and often for good reason about services they're getting at the local level um, and property taxes, you name it. And so two things happen here. Turnout's low, and in a third of the communities, there wasn't even a there wasn't even a race for mayor. You know, only there was only one person there, so it was acclamation. Um, so which would have taken obviously some of the the, the glow off uh, heading off. But there are council members, school boards, there's all the other stuff uh, that's important to the way your community runs. So what? Um, What's your take on this? What's the? What's it's a the whole stew of, of different problems, Peter. I think, and I'm glad you're raising it. I think it's an important issue. Of the first thing that I observe is that we've kind of fallen a little bit into the trap of of talking about the most recent turnout rates uh, with really lowered expectations. So that we'll say, well, you know, if you could get 50 percent turnout, that would be great because normally it's more like 43 or 40 or something like that. Well, that's you know, to me, that's part of the problem. Um, we should be looking for much higher turnout rates and we should be trying different public policy measures, including possibly small fines for people who don't vote. Um, I think that we have to challenge ourselves to figure out how to get significantly higher turnout rates in our uh, democratic races. And there are reasons why politicians don't always favor that. Most of those reasons are cynical in nature, um, but it's a problem. The second thing, though, that that I think happens, and you and I have observed this over the long haul, is that being in politics always came 
with a lot of criticism. You were always subject to the slings and arrows uh, if you were in public life. But I think the question we have to ask ourselves, is that even worse now than it ever has been because of the role of social media, that sort of thing? And I think it is worse. I think that for a lot of people, the idea of putting your name forward, entering the public arena comes with a great fear that you're um, that you're immediately going to be exposed to a level of public attack and criticism that's personal, that could be threatening, uh, and that isn't worth uh, the, it just isn't worthwhile for a lot of people to do it. And the last thing that I'm anxious about now in this respect, particularly around uh, local politics, is that the erosion of local news organizations, financial erosion, human resources, all of that means that there isn't as much coverage as there used to be by a considerable amount. And uh, as I was uh, kind of online the other night looking for results to the municipal election in Ottawa, where I live, uh, and realizing that there wasn't the kind of live coverage of a pretty significant municipal election, something that captured a fair bit of attention. Um, there was only some online posting. Um, it made me realize we've fallen far from the level of uh, coverage of our politics at the at the local level in particular, but you probably say the same thing at the provincial and the federal level, and that also is going to depress turnout over time. So I think we've got work to do. I I hope that um, that there are some politicians who decide that this is something they want to help uh, turn around. Can you make voting e- easier? I mean, it seems to me they've they've tried all kinds of things. There there are more advanced polling days that are available they spread them out to kind of take away the argument that uh you know i can't get off my work even though i'm allowed to take time off work to vote but it, you know i i can't because i feel that i have to be there on that particular day so the you know their advanced polling their shift hours advanced around. polling has really helped i mean without advanced polling imagine where we would be right now is is the question for me so yes i think it can be made easier the big question that um that kind of hangs over all of this is what about online polling? And, and of course, I felt like we were societally in democracies, maybe kind of inching towards the that idea being embraced. Uh, but I think that the conversation in the US about whether their last presidential election was fraudulent, was rigged, was stolen, has probably slowed momentum towards that because um, the challenge with online polling probably isn't technical or technological. It's probably will people believe that they can have as much confidence in a uh, in a digital election, if you like, as they would want to have in a paper and pencil oriented election. And I think that it, it is one of those things that's a little bit like confidence in self-driving cars. We're not there yet. Um, and probably the conversation about U.S. politics in the last presidential means that that the distance between now and when that technology might be embraced is further than it was rather than getting closer. Well, here's the last one for you. Uh, in spite of how important local politics is to all of us, because for all the reasons we've already listed, is part of the problem that it somehow local politics just isn't sexy enough? I mean, I hate to, I hate to 
put it in those terms, but there's something about the big elections, you know, when it's the Trudeau versus Polyev or Ford versus whoever the other guys put up uh, in Ontario, and it's about to be Smith versus um, uh, the NDP in Alberta in, you know, in the springtime. Um, and there's something more sort of engaging, more sexy about those kind of races. And yet municipal politics is rarely seems to have that. I mean, kind of had it with Rob Ford in, in Toronto, but it doesn't, it rarely has it, uh, that kind of edge to it. That's an interesting question. I think that, that what municipal politics often lacks is that sense of the entertainment value. Uh, what you're talking about is sexiness. I think of as uh, what are the entertainment values like? If people are distracted by all of the other forms of entertainment out there, is municipal politics going to compete well with that? But on the other hand, um, how often your garbage gets picked up, whether the bike lanes are safe for you or your kids to use. Um, the idea that you know one mayoral candidate in Ottawa uh, offered up, which was free uh, public transit for uh, kids under 18, those are real meat and potato issues that affect the way that people live in the communities in which they live. And so, um, well, the entertainment values might not always be what they appear to be at the national or at the international level. The meaningfulness of uh, a lot of these choices made at the local level should logically act as a buttress for participation, but they don't. And I think one of the, the reasons why is this is the kind of general slow breakdown of local news organizations under the financial pressures that, that we know that uh, many news organizations have been under, but without durable and promising solutions yet found to deal with that. I, I know that some things are being tried to stimulate local news coverage, um, the federal government in particular has put some programs in place to help try to fill some of those gaps that are widening. Um, remains to be seen whether that will, whether that will work. Um, I like to think that eventually a market will develop where people say, I need to know more about what's going on where I live. And so will somebody provide that to me? And there, there will be a buyer and a seller uh, relationship again. But um, that's been uh, that's been eroding for for a good long while, and uh, to our uh, peril, I think, to some degree, in terms of understanding and influencing the the local choices that are made on our behalf. Well, as one local mayor said to me uh, not too long ago, um, the local newspaper is not covering the things that are facing the city and the discussions that are taking place in council, and as a result, when we have a council meeting, there's nobody there from the public because they're not aware of it, because they haven't read about it, and so they don't challenge us. And for some days, you're kind of happy for that. You can breeze through a council meeting, get it over with, but it's not the way it should work, and it's not the way we should be accountable uh, to the public. And it all traces back, as a number of things have done on this discussion today, to the role of the media and the responsibility of the media in covering uh, you know, public policy issues uh, to an extent that perhaps they haven't been uh, doing a good enough job on for a number of different reasons. One, because they uh, they just haven't been covering the stories. And two, as you point out, because of the economy of journalism right now and the difficulties some organizations are having just uh, holding uh, and, and hiring staff. Okay, we're going to leave it at that for, uh, for this day. Uh, another interesting smoke mirrors and the truth. 
with Bruce Anderson. Tomorrow, it's your turn and the random ranter. The ranter may take a run at the convoy commission uh, that's going on in Ottawa. See what he has to say. But of course, your turn is mainly your letters, your thoughts. If you have any, get them in like now at uh, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The question of the week has been if you had an opportunity to do one thing to the CBC, what would that one thing be? I had quite a few uh, uh, responses to that uh, question. Interesting ones. All right, Bruce, thanks very much. We'll uh, talk uh, to Bruce again, obviously, on Friday for Good Talk when Chantel drops by as well. That's it for now. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.